the Republicans to wake up. What the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, delivered to your earbuds over the Internet. And I'm grateful to listeners who support this program, including Paul L. Sesser, James DeSisto, Carol Pridgen, Mark Lisgard, and C.B. Parrish. If you can help and you'd like to, go to my website at peterbcollins.com. Click on the tab that says you can help. Our voluntary subscriptions start at $5 a month. In segment two of this podcast, we'll talk with Andrew McGuire, a truly amazing fellow and a former MacArthur Genius Fellow. He's now heading up CaliforniaOneCare.org, and he'll talk about his tactics to keep the fight for single-payer health care in the United States alive and uh, moving forward. But first... I want to recommend a new documentary called The Sun Behind the Clouds. And filmmaker Tenzing Sonam joins us now. He was born in Darjeeling in northeastern India to Tibetan refugee parents. And he has a degree in broadcast journalism from the University of California's Graduate School of Journalism. And The Sun Behind the Clouds is a fascinating look at the last two years in Tibet and the role of the Dalai Lama in his struggles with the Chinese government uh, to bring meaningful progress toward autonomy or even independence for Tibet. Tenzing Sonam, thank you for joining me today. Uh, pleasure. And let me tell you what a powerful film this is, and it's powerful in its visuals that certainly uh, give us a great sense of Tibet. Uh, your coverage of the monks is, is very touching, and the whole film is very sensitive to the cultural values and the spiritual values of the people that you cover. And I thank you for that, because while you were sensitive and gentle in many respects, you didn't shy away from the controversies between Tibet and China, and most importantly, uh, some of the controversies among uh, factions of the uh, Tibetans who still live there and the uh, exile community, which, of course, is agitating for independence or at least autonomy. Uh, tell us a little bit about your own background and what you brought to the sensitivities that I just described. Well, uh, as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, I was born in uh, India. My parents uh, came to India as refugees as did uh, over 100,000 Tibetans uh, who followed the Dalai Lama into exile. So I was uh, born and brought up uh, within an exiled Tibetan community. And uh, we were brought up to believe that, you know, we were only temporarily in exile, that uh, the goal of our 
being in exile was to want to go back to Tibet. And what we had to do was to fight for Tibet's independence. So that was something that we were kind of uh, brought up with. And so the whole life has been, uh, you know, sort of uh, based around. So in that sense, uh, this film uh, is very, very close to uh, who I am as a and, uh, and, you know, the struggle that the Tibetan people face. So I suppose it's something that uh, I've grown up with. So I'm intimately uh, familiar with uh, uh, what's going on uh, in the struggle. And Tenzing, uh, you and your filmmaker wife, Rita Serene, uh, uh, Ritu Serene, I'm sorry, yep. uh, produced this film. Just a personal question. Is it harder to raise your two kids or to agree on how to edit a film you're working on together? <laughs> that, that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would, uh, on balance, uh, say it's probably harder to make a film, you know, to, to raise, uh, especially to raise money to uh, make a film. I, uh, I, I, yeah. I thought that might be your answer. Okay. Well, um, and, and what does Ritu's uh, background bring to these issues? Is she also a Tibetan? No, Ritu is uh, Indian, and uh, she uh, didn't have any connection with uh, the Tibetan uh, situation or with Tibetans in general until we met uh, many, many years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, then, you know, got married. And since then, she's been uh, very active in the, the Tibet uh, struggle and the Tibet movement. And I think in our work together, what she brings is uh, she brings a kind of uh, an objectivity that uh, perhaps sometimes uh, I don't have since the subject is so close to me. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, that uh, balance uh, you know, that she brings is really important uh, in how we present our film. Tenzing, the film struck me on a number of levels, uh, partly the remarkable access that you have to the Dalai Lama and not only in formal public events, but in his more private moments. Uh, you cover him and talk with him and, and show him in some of his uh, his daily routine. Uh, take a moment here. This is not a, a soundbite show, so you don't have to give me just two sentences. But mm-hmm. talk about the Dalai Lama and his own awareness of the complex role that he plays as both a spiritual leader and as someone who is looked to as a political leader, particularly by those yearning for Tibetan independence? Mm-hmm. I think this is a, a kind of a dilemma that he himself is very much aware of, because uh, he often talks about the fact that uh, if he had the choice, he would uh, rather not have the political responsibility that uh, he does have. And he has also said on many occasions that uh, if the Tibet situation were to be resolved, in a happy way, then he would immediately give up all political responsibility. And, you know, he's also said that religion and politics should not be mixed. So these are things he's obviously, uh, that he believes in and he's very much aware of, but at the same time, he cannot escape the fact that he is the Dalai Lama. And as such, he is the political leader of the Tibetan people, and the responsibility of, you know, resolving Tibet's issue rests squarely on him. And, uh, you know, uh, all Tibetans look to him for uh, an answer. So I think that really, that responsibility is something that weighs very heavily on him. And uh, I feel that over the years, as he's tried his best uh, to resolve the Tibet issue by reaching out to China, compromises, for instance, by giving up uh, the demand for independence, and time and again has just rebuffed his uh, overtures, has rejected his offers and continued to accuse him of wanting independence, of wanting to restore his former powers. I think he's beginning to feel 
frustrated. And you know, as he seems, uh, as he says many times in the film, he feels helpless. Uh, so these are definitely issues that uh, I think are, are bearing down heavily on him. And one of the things that you informed me about through this film that I was not aware of, and I have not followed Tibetan issues closely, but I read the newspaper and uh, try to try to keep up with uh, most uh, foreign policy issues. Uh, but take a moment here to describe the middle way that has been articulated by the Dalai Lama and the frustration that that has caused among many people who certainly uh, uh, defer to him on spiritual matters, but are struggling on the political level. Yeah, uh, see, until uh, the, the late 80s, the kind of goal of the Tibetan struggle well, was uh, to regain independence. So as I was telling you earlier, like uh, someone of my generation who was you know, born and brought up in India uh, in, the, in the 60s, we believed that uh, independence was what we were fighting for. So in the late 80s, the Dalai Lama decided uh, that the only way to break the impasse with China was to give up his demand, because uh, so long as we stuck to the demand for independence, there would be no room to uh, maneuver at all uh, in, in terms of uh, having a dialogue with China. So he gave up the goal for independence, which came as a big shock to Tibetans, because you know it was something that was so close to our hearts. But yet, you know, because it was coming from the Dalai Lama, and we all you know, completely respect and uh, trust him, we accepted it. Uh, we sort of, uh, you know, went along with it. Could uh, achieve the goals that he set out to achieve. But over the years, uh, the middle way approach, uh, as it's uh, as his policy has come to be known, which basically says that uh, we don't want independence. We're happy to be a part of China. We want genuine autonomy, which means uh, the right to uh, control our own culture, language. Uh, you know, uh, just so to have those to have those rights genuinely uh, is what we're looking for. And as long as we get that, we're happy to be part of China. So that's basically what the Dalai Lama has been asking for. Now, what's happened since he uh, set out on this uh, path in the late 80s is that uh, he has made no headway at all. Uh, you know, China has simply used uh, his offer as a way of uh, dragging the issue along, pretending that it's talking to him, and yet at the end of each talk, you know, uh, rejecting it. And it's become clear now that basically, you know, their strategy is to wait for him to pass away because they believe that once he's no longer there, that issue itself will disappear. So I think uh, as this realization has become clearer, more and more Tibetans are beginning to express their frustration at the lack of uh, you know, progress with the Middle Way approach. And this is leading people to think back again uh, to the goal of independence, because that's the one goal that all Tibetans share. You know? So I think this is where the, sort of, uh, the differences of political opinion are beginning to express themselves within the Tibetan community. And Tenzing Sonam, um, is there a perception that the Dalai Lama unfortunately ended up negotiating with himself? Because this was not a part of any serious bargaining with China. He Mm -hmm. basically made a unilateral move hoping that China would respond in kind. And while there were some feints, uh, particularly around the time of the Beijing Olympics, uh, China has basically just taken what has been given by the Dalai Lama and used it to divide um, the, the followers and those who aspire for autonomy or independence for Tibet. Uh, 
So uh, in pure political terms, uh, has the Dalai Lama undermined uh, the prospects for uh, independence or autonomy by attempting to uh, essentially bargain with dictators? I, I, this is a this is a you know uh, a key question and a, a very difficult one to kind of give an answer to because uh, if you look at uh, what the Dalai Lama has achieved as a result of you know going uh, down this road, uh, you know one could argue that uh, the fact that the Tibet issue today is very much because uh, of who he is and the values he stands for, uh, and the fact that you know he gave up independence. Um, in, in, in an attempt to uh, negotiate in a peaceful way with China. So, I mean, arguments are made that uh, he has actually kept the Tibet issue alive as a result of his, uh, you know, the moves he's made. Whereas if he had taken a tougher line right from the beginning, perhaps the world wouldn't be as sympathetic to him as it is today, and so the Tibet issue may have actually disappeared. Now, I personally don't think that's the case, because uh, I think that the What's important is that the struggle remains nonviolent. I think that's that's really key. And uh, the goal of our struggle, you know, uh, that's something that we really need to think carefully about. And in my opinion, I think he has tried, uh, you know, compromise. And it's obvious that it's failed because, as you say, the dictators in China are not interested in dealing with him. You know, so we do need to take that tougher stand. But I think for the Dalai Lama to take that tougher stand, it's really difficult because he always thinks of uh, the consequences of any action from a Buddhist perspective. And that means that if any action he takes is liable to cause, say, bloodshed or, you know, lead to violence of any kind, then he feels personally responsible for that. And so he feels he can't uh, do it. But as you say, in politics, I think you have to be able to take tough stance and, you know, Maybe that's where the conflict is between who he is as a religious person and uh, who he is as a political person, that the two actually, you know, sometimes don't uh, sit happily together. And this comes into sharp relief when you cover the, uh, the march by Buddhist monks in 2008 that was brutally suppressed by the Chinese and from there, the Chinese blamed the Dalai Lama for orchestrating those protests. Absolutely. And and my belief, based on the film and, and other information that I've gathered, is that the Dalai Lama did not orchestrate or encourage those actions, that those were uh, taken by the individuals and, and the groups who chose to do so uh, without his consultation, because they probably knew that he would not approve. That's yet, right. Yet... Uh, the end result is that China is able, at least publicly, to blame the Dalai Lama uh, for these actions, even though he had no direct role in them. That's right. This is what China always does. Uh, I mean, China knows uh, very well that uh, the Dalai Lama would not be instigating any actions that lead to violence, uh, far less, uh, or you know, uh, and that he actually had nothing to do with uh, the uprising in Tibet. China knows that. But equally, it knows that if it, you know, publicly blames him for doing that, he is on the defensive. He has to, you know, then come up and say, no, I didn't do it. And so they have that, that uh, matter. And, you know, what's interesting about this particular case is that uh, I remember, uh, you know, uh, Senator uh, Nancy uh, Pelosi, or Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, came to Dharamsala around the time of uh, 
the demonstrations in March 2008, and she made this very emotional speech where she said, how can China accuse this man of peace of having instigated violence? We demand like a, a you know, a public uh, inquiry. We demand that China allows like an independent inquiry to come into Tibet to uh, prove that the Dalai Lama wasn't involved. And yet, of course, as we know, no such, you know, independent inquiry was ever, uh, in, you know, uh, put in place. And the whole matter just died. And what they left with is the fact that China accused him of uh, having started the violence, and that's still where it stands. So, I mean, that's just an example of uh, how China plays its game and, uh, you know, it pushes and pushes, even though everyone knows that it's, uh, you know, lying uh, oftentimes, and yet uh, they allow China to get away with it. Tenzing, if, if you could parse the reasons why China is opposed to autonomy or independence for Tibet, is it simply that they want to preserve absolute control over every province of what they view as China? Is it a battle over the Buddhist religion uh, that most Tibetans devoutly follow? Um, is it political or economic? W- what are the factors that drive China's obsession with uh, retaining control over Tibet, suppressing its people, and in particular, uh, destabilizing whatever uh, legitimacy the Dalai Lama holds over those people? Uh, yeah, I think the key uh, reason why China is so secure over Tibet, even more than uh, other provinces in China, is because uh, because of the issue of legitimacy. China knows that uh, the only way it uh, you know took control of Tibet was through the use of force. Because if we uh, you know go back uh, in time, uh, it was the People's Liberation Army that invaded Tibet, you know, and uh, defeated the Tibetan army, and then forced the Dalai Lama's government to sign uh, an agreement, and then they marched into Lhasa. Until that point in 1950, uh, or 1951, when the PLA marched into Lhasa, no Chinese presence in Tibet. So, you know, the claim that China con- uh, continually makes, which is Tibet has always been a part of uh, China, uh, and that China liberated Tibet from, you know, uh, feudalism or, you know, uh, an oppressive uh, like an outdoor ruling class, I mean, all of that doesn't make any sense because it all goes back to the fact that they militarily invaded Tibet and occupied it. So I think this issue of legitimacy is something that really uh, drives China. And what it really wants is it wants the Dalai Lama to state once and for all, yes, Tibet was always a part of China. And that's the one thing that he cannot do because he knows that, you know, that that wouldn't be true. So I think this is the reason why China so... Uh, in a sense, uh, afraid of negotiating with him, because it knows that if the Dalai Lama were to come back to Tibet or China, his mere presence there would unleash, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, unrest and problems that they might not be able to suppress. So it's much easier for them to keep him in exile and, uh, you know, not, not have him come back to Tibet. And it's interesting because you included the perspectives in particular of young Chinese uh, in their 20s, university educated, who had uh, been, I guess the right term is fed or propagandized, uh, a whole point of view that demonizes the history of Tibet and uh, attempts to legitimize the, uh, the aspirations for total control held by the rulers in Beijing. 
right. Because, uh, I mean, it, it again comes down to the fact that uh, the Chinese government knows the truth about, uh, you know, uh, how it came into control, how it came to control Tibet. So it's always rewritten history to uh, kind of uh, tell its own people, you know, that this wasn't the case, that Tibet was always a part of China, that old Tibet was this barbaric slave society that, you know, the Chinese then came and, uh, you know, liberated, and then they brought civilization. I mean, this is the classic kind of uh, colonial uh, justification for occupying, occupation and invasion, right? And they've done that so thoroughly inside China that this is the one issue where all Chinese uh, seem to be, you know, kind of completely behind their government. And that's really interesting uh, because if you think of all the Chinese students who've, uh, who study in America, who have access to all kinds of information, even they still, you know, when it comes to the issue of Tibet, they still support their government's views. And, uh, you know, to me, that's something that's really uh, very interesting and sometimes surprising because it just goes to show you how deeply kind of, um, uh, I mean, I hate to use the word brainwashed, but, you know, how, how deeply uh, they've been, like, uh, taught to believe that. Yes, indeed. Well, there's so much in the film. One of the other factors that you illustrate is that uh, China completed a railway link into Tibet over the last few years. And, what, upwards of a million Chinese have moved into Tibet to uh, essentially dilute the native population? Well, uh, since the railway was built a few years ago, uh, on average, uh, more than a million passengers have been coming into Tibet. And a good proportion of that uh, number have actually, like, not returned to China. So, uh, I mean, we don't know the exact figures of, you know, how many Chinese are settling in Tibet, but we do know that since the railway was built, I mean, it's really uh, increased the numbers. And uh, we also know that in the big cities in Tibet, you know, in Lhasa, in Shigatse, in Chandu, the Chinese population, uh, you know, outnumbers the local Tibetan population. And we also know that uh, Chinese migrants are now moving into the countryside. So, yes, there is a big threat uh, that Tibet... Uh, you know, whether this is official government policy or not is uh, unclear, but the fact remains that, you know, Tibet, uh, Tibetans are becoming marginalized in their own country. Mm -hmm. Finally, Tenzing, um, what is your personal take on the Obama administration? They, uh, the president did meet with the Dalai Lama, but delayed it uh, in order to reduce uh, uh, the irritation to China, who holds so much of our debt and who we have many other issues with. But uh, do you believe that President Obama uh, has a, a strong understanding of the challenges in Tibet, and do you think that he considers it a significant issue? I think uh, Tibet is uh, you know, an important issue in uh, the administration, but uh, when it comes, you know, uh, it's not important enough for uh, America or for any other country to take issue with China on. And in a sense, the Dalai Lama's middle way approach suits, uh, you know, countries like the U.S. because as long as China is pretending to uh, have a dialogue with the Dalai Lama, it keeps everyone happy, you know. So then no one needs to put pressure on China, and China understands that. So that's why it it, it kind of drags this negotiation process along, because each time it, uh, you know, has a talk, uh, holds a talk with the Dalai Lama's representatives. The U.S. government is happy, and uh, the European Union is happy, and no one then pushes China on what's actually happening in Tibet. 
I think uh, President Obama actually sent, uh, unfortunately, a bad signal when he refused to meet the Dalai Lama the first time before he went uh, to China. Yeah. Because, you know, for the Chinese, these little gestures are really important. And that gesture that Obama made could be uh, could have been interpreted in China as uh, a sign of weakness, you know, that China does actually hold the cards. And even the president of the United States is willing to defer to them on matters like not meeting the Dalai Lama. So, I mean, uh, I would have uh, wished that he had not done that. But having said that, I think uh, the president himself is very sympathetic to the Tibetan issue. But, you know, his hands are tied, uh, unfortunately, because, as you said, China is... Uh, you know, economically uh, holds a lot of cards at the moment, and even countries like America need China. Mm-hmm. Tenzing Sonam, thank you for a powerful film. I appreciate your time today. It's called The Sun Behind the Clouds, Tibet's Struggle for Freedom, and it opens June 18th at the Opera Plaza Theater in San Francisco, the Shattuck in Berkeley, and then July 2nd at the smith Rafael Film Center in San Rafael. And you can get more information at the website thesunbehindtheclouds.com. Tenzing, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. The Peter B. Collins Show continues, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic, and I invite you to join the Peter B. Collins Organic Wine Club. They'll ship three bottles to your home every month for a very low price, and it's quite convenient. Check out the details. The link is on my homepage at peterbcollins.com. And on this podcast, we've been following the bizarre developments in South Carolina where an unknown, unemployed veteran named Alvin Green won the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate seat to take on Jim DeMint, one of the most Neanderthal of Neanderthal Republicans. And on Thursday this week, the Democratic State Committee met and ratified the bizarre, unproven results of the election conducted on touchscreen voting machines. We'll catch up with Brad Friedman and get the details in the next few days. In the meantime, I encourage you to go check out the very latest reporting at bradblog.com. Since Barack Obama took office with the promise of reforming health care in this country, many of us have advocated loudly and as firmly as possible for a single-payer model. And we didn't get that out of what is now being dubbed Obamacare. But the struggle continues. Here's a message from the Controlled Healthcare Insurance Corporation. Crimes Department, Ernestine. Nope, not covered. Being blind is a pre-existing condition. You should have read the fine print. We don't care if you're fed up, just if you're paid up. It takes big bucks to run an insurance company. Medical care is the least of it. This kind of waste does not come cheap. At controlled health care, life itself is a pre-existing condition. <laughs> Our prescription for it, don't get sick. California One Care. Full care for all for life. Here is Andrew McGuire. He is the brains behind California One Care. And visit their website. There are tons of these uh, mini messages, commercials, 
featuring people like Lily Tomlin, lots of other great Hollywood people, Elliot Gould, Paula Poundstone, the Ed Asner just popped up on the list here. Andrew, welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show. Oh, pleasure, Peter. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's good to talk with you again, and I just want to thank you for your lifetime commitment to health care, to safety. Uh, you were on the forefront of the safe cigarette and then banning the cigarette. You uh, were identified as a MacArthur genius uh, back there, uh, I guess, a decade or so ago. Uh, I talked to you in the 90s about your, uh, your safety programs and uh, efforts to prevent gun violence. You were very active with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And uh, tell our listeners about your childhood episode that uh, caused you to really make this commitment to health care and safety issues. Uh, you're making me feel old, Peter. <laughs> uh, well, we are. <laughs> I know. And also, uh, you said a decade ago for the MacArthur Award. That was 25 years ago. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> The, uh, I, what you're referring to is uh, in 1952, on my seventh birthday, and uh, listeners can do the quick arithmetic and realize that I'm qualifying for Medicare this year. Uh, on my seventh birthday, I uh, was early in the morning standing next to a kitchen stove. I opened up uh, the oven door, which opened sideways like a regular door into a house, rather than coming down. And that allowed me as a seven-year-old to back up to the oven and stand there with the oven flame on and get warm in the winter. And that's what I did, and my, the hem of my bathrobe caught fire. And uh, I, I did what I think most little kids do. I ran into the living room. My father came out of the bedroom and grabbed me and put it out. The, the net result was I had uh, full thickness or third-degree burns on my legs and hands. Uh, were second-degree burn, and back of my head was second-degree burn, and so on, and spent about three months, four different hospital admissions uh, in East Oakland Hospital, the hospital of my birth. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't obviously come out of that experience saying, I'm going to do what I can to prevent burn injuries. I, I, that was never a thought. But uh, in 1973, my wife and I were, uh, had just moved back to Boston uh, to do something totally unrelated. I was going to be a harpsichord maker. Really? I was going to apprentice with a harpsichord maker. Huh. And uh, there was an article in the Boston Globe not too long after we moved back there that said these parents uh, whose children had been burn injured in their pajamas were in the Shriners Burns Institute, and the parents were going to lobby uh, to get flame-resistant pajamas so kids didn't get burned in mm -hmm. their pajamas and robes. And I had never heard that you could make clothing that wouldn't be ignitable. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason that they were pursuing it is there was a safety standard that all children's sleepwear had to be flame-resistant in Great Britain. And it had been a standard for 10 years. Uh, so... I went to the first meeting of that group, the very first meeting. Uh, lo and behold, I became their executive director. I quit thinking about being a harpsichord maker. And uh, that was in 70, uh, early uh, February of 74. And uh, from that time on, I've been involved in the prevention of first traumatic burn injuries and then 
other kinds of injuries. When I came back to San Francisco General Hospital and met Dr. Don Trunke, who is a burn surgeon and a trauma surgeon, he's the person who said, Andrew, you should get involved in other types of injuries, too, to prevent them. Mm-hmm. The only good thing you can do with an injury is to prevent it. After it happens, it's too late, typically. Yeah. So that, that's sort of the short story. But the, the, the issue that I really uh, spent, have spent the most time on in my career, if you call it that, is to uh, get fire-safe cigarettes. Uh, and you referred to it earlier as safe cigarettes. It, there is no safe cigarette, but mm-hmm. you can make cigarettes so they won't cause fires. Yeah. And uh, in 1978, I started that campaign, uh, and in those years, it was considered uh, very loony that someone would even come up with the idea, think that you could take on the tobacco industry, and it was seemed like an oxymoron to people. Fire-safe cigarette, cigarettes are meant to burn. How can you make it not cause a fire? Well, it turns out this, the cigarette industry, going back to the 1930s, early 1930s, I've had patents around knowing how to make a cigarette self-extinguish so it won't cause a fire. So the technology has been there forever. But but didn't they also put accelerants or other yeah. ingredients in to keep the no. cigarette lit so you what? didn't have to relight it five times as you were smoking it? No, that is, that's uh, actually a, a, a wonderful urban myth. Uh-huh. They add calcium citrate to the paper to make the paper burn evenly. Oh, okay. But the tobacco, uh, the, the way it's desiccated, if you will, uh, it'll burn naturally mm-hmm. if it's packed a certain way. It's really the density of the, of the tobacco packing that determines whether it goes out or doesn't go out or whatever. So there, there are very simple physical ways to change the paper so it's less porous to make it self-extinguish. It has nothing to do with chemicals. Mm-hmm. So making a cigarette go out when it's dropped in a bed or a couch has nothing whatsoever to do with chemicals being added or subtracted. Okay. Uh, but this is a side story for today's It is. Uh, and, and, and just before we get to the main event here, I want to touch briefly on your efforts to stem gun violence because uh, that remains a very important issue and gun regulation is uh, very unpopular now. Uh, we have a Democratic president who has uh, tipped his hand to the Second Amendment lobby. And, uh, you know, still every day on our streets, uh, people are being gunned down. And in our homes, uh, people who know each other, loved ones, are using guns uh, to settle scores and uh, lives are ended in a, in a very tragic way. Uh, talk a little bit about your efforts to educate people on these issues. Yeah, well, uh, the, the first issue that I specifically got involved with, and I should say that all of these efforts were coming out of a nonprofit organization called the Trauma Foundation based at San Francisco General Hospital. Uh, the first effort was to ban assault weapons, and I had a very minor role. At, remember the Stockton schoolyard shooting where these five children were killed by a gentleman using an assault weapon. Sure. And that led to uh, the banning of assault weapons in California, you know, the first state to do it. But that's the first time I got involved in the issue. But in 1993, I specifically uh, began a campaign working with a lot of other organizations and very fine people. But I chaired the effort, if you will, uh, to ban cheap little handguns called Saturday Night Specials. Mm-hmm. And that took five years before we finally got it through uh, <clears throat> to the governor, actually it was the new governor, Gray Davis, who signed it. 
And that's the first time that a specific handgun type had ever been banned in this state. And uh, then after that, I, I became the head of uh, an organization called the Million Mom March. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a major demonstration in support of uh, sane gun laws, as I call it, in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> in the Mother's Day of 2000. And there were over 700,000 people that showed up in support of gun regulation on the Capitol Mall. We also had 81 other cities had events that same day, including Oakland and so on. And some of those rallies in other cities had 20 or 30,000 people. So it was the, the biggest rally in support of, of gun control in U.S. history. But, and here's, here's the tragedy of Gore winning the election but not being allowed to serve, <laughs> uh, is that in the year 2000 when G.W. Bush took over, the uh, Wayne LaPierre of the National Rifle Association said, now we can set up an office in the White House. Yeah. And eight years later, after Bush, <clears throat> all the, the gun control efforts uh, were decimated. Uh, uh, I got involved in, in uh, what ultimately has become my <laughs> major uh, windmill I'm going after at the moment. So tell us about the origins of California One Care, and I want people to visit the website, californiaonecare.org. You have some very interesting approaches to uh, educating people about the benefits of a single-payer approach to health care delivery in this country. California One Care is new. Uh, it was a project of a nonprofit uh, that I still work with very closely called Healthcare for All California. Healthcare for All California has been around 15 years and grew out of the failed uh, initiative for single payer that occurred in uh, 1994. So, Healthcare for All, uh, for the past five years, uh, I've been the executive director. But what we've done is we've spun off California One Care from Healthcare for All to be a separate nonprofit that I'm leading to specifically focus on a online, and other forms of media campaign. Um, And part of that campaign, and only part of it, is we're doing 30-second ads, regular TV ads, uh, with a lot of different people, but at the moment, the vast majority have been actors in Hollywood who've been agreeing to be in our ads. Uh, Because we're working very closely with the Screen Actors Guild Foundation and uh, professional musicians, Local 47 in Los Angeles, and so on. And we're trying to get the entertainment industry to be sort of upfront and central in being in support of single-payer. And believe me, they're the first group. We're going to go after the business and corporate community, the faith-based communities, on and on until we create a mass movement. We also have a major presence that we're just starting on blogs. Uh, one of our key board members uh, is a, uh, a routine blogger on Daily Coffs and uh, Fire Dog Lake and uh, Calitics and so on. So we have... And, and who is that? His name is... Uh, he goes by Shockwave. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I would prefer not saying his real name okay. because of where he works. <laughs> fine. That's fine. All right. Uh, but he's... Uh, He's literally, and, and this isn't even known yet, but he is uh, in constant touch with all of the key 
health policy bloggers in the United States who almost all of them support single payer. And we are in the background right now putting together all the ingredients for uh, a major rollout of, of progressive blogging in support of single payer in California. The reason California is because we are so much further ahead in getting to single payer than any other state. And we will mimic what happened in Canada. When Canada got single-payer health care, it was because Saskatchewan did it first. And the premier of Saskatchewan is the, the most famous Canadian. In all, poll after poll among Canadians, when you say, who's the, you know, the best person in your history, it's always Tommy Douglas, the guy who brought their what they call Medicare mm-hmm. in all ages. Tommy Douglas is Kiefer Sutherland's grandfather. Oh, really? And uh, so we... You know, that, that's sort of uh, indicative, I think, of how we can proceed politically in, in this country to get single-payer. We'll do it in California first. All right. I, I want to pursue that, but I want to play another message here. I went into your archives, and the late Walter Cronkite is featured in one of the ads that people can see at CaliforniaOneCare.org. Now, Let's listen. Oh, this is quotes, I see. He doesn't actually speak. <laughs> right. It, actually, we, we couldn't get the actual sound recording. Uh-huh. Uh, there's three or four that are quotes uh, in our 91 ads that, I, that we've done so far. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the quote is quite amazing. <laughs> it is, and I, I got distracted there, and I have already uh, deleted that one from my screen here, but uh, people can go and find it for themselves. Now, some of these are very amusing, like uh, Lily Tomlin, and others are uh, pretty straightforward, more serious. Right. Uh, and some are from average people, right, who have exactly. done their own YouTube videos and uh, sent them in to you. What, uh, what is your criteria here for an effective message, Andrew? Um, well, we actually have, you can go on the website, and, and we have ideas of what mm-hmm. you can uh, make a spot about if you want to submit it to us. Uh, we actually wrote down, before we started, 365 different ideas because we're running an ad every day for a year, 365 ads, and we want the general public to join in. Uh, so the, we have people who are telling their own personal stories of how a, an insurance corporation uh, made them go bankrupt or refused them care and they couldn't... Uh, or a, a guy whose brother died. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, we all know these horror stories. And once we get beyond the horror stories into political action and convert that horror story into actual movement building, then we're going to get there. Then we're going to actually take a trillion-dollar industry called the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry and the medical device industry, and we're going to ultimately make them go out of, for-profit business. They, they can remain as a boutique industry to, to be insurers of people who want facelifts or tummy tucks, that kind of stuff. But there is no room in health care, I think, in, <clears throat> for private profit from the insurance industry. I, I only view that, and many others in our campaign, only view that as leeches taking 30 or more percent of every dollar out for profits that have nothing, absolutely nothing, to do with health care delivery. 
Now, I'm sure in many interviews you have to uh, make the case and uh, uh, prove those points. Uh, I'm solidly on board with you. I just don't see a path uh, to single payer at this time. And I, I'd like you to give me your thoughts about um, how we come out of the uh, energy that was expended to solidify the for-profit industry's controls over uh, delivery of pharmaceuticals, delivery of health care, and the insurance behind it. And uh, because Democrats need to characterize this as a huge victory and a major success, I don't know where we find the political will and the political capital to uh, really go in this sensible direction. Uh, the, you know, the, I, I have no argument with single payer as at least uh, the, the uh, you know, most efficient way of delivering these services. The problem we have is that uh, what President Obama signed off on uh, does uh, cement the control of the profiteers over delivery of these critical services that should be a right for every citizen. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not disagreeing whatsoever with what you said. Let me now give you a few uh, backgrounders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> First of all, the uh, Obamacare, and let's just call it that from here on out, the Obamacare uh, has no fundamental cost controls. And in fact, Health and Human Services, the federal cabinet post for Sibelius's uh, shop, mm -hmm. they have already come out with two key points in a major study, already. Point number one is that the rise in insurance premium costs in the private insurance industry is going to continue rising at the same rate that it's been rising for the last decade, into the next decade. There, there, the Obamacare will have no impact on slowing the cost of insurance premiums. Mm -hmm. uh, now, why that's interesting is that insurance premiums go up faster than inflation, twice or more times faster. And so when you have something that's horribly expensive today, you can only guarantee it's going to get more and more expensive. And pretty soon, even though people in 2014 will be mandated if they don't have insurance they'll be mandated by law to buy insurance from private health insurers that insurance is going to be too expensive very soon for anyone to afford and what they'll do is they'll just be fined by the federal government on their tax returns and just pay the fine and remain uninsured that's the only way financially the individual and the family can get out of this onerous onerous mandate from this Obamacare that they have to buy private insurance in the future if they're uninsured. So that's one point. The, the cost of private insurance is going to rise faster than inflation way into the future, period. And Andrew, I agree with you on the okay. mandate. I think that the mandate is going to be used by the right uh, to create more political noise um, about what they will call government-run health care, even though we don't have anything of the sort. Yeah, I, I understand. That's, that's a, a grassroots media political issue, but let me get to that in a second. All right. I want to give you the other point. Even though it's hailed as a massive reform that's going to you know, give people insurance and so on, after Obamacare takes effect in 2014 and thereafter, there will still be over 22 to 23 million people in the United States uninsured, and in California, over 3 million people still uninsured 
that are outside of the mandate. In other words, it, it will then get down to not only a smaller number of insured, but it will remain immoral and with millions suffering. Millions. So the cost is going up, and millions will continue to be uninsured. That is ripe for grassroots movements to grab it by the throat, the insurance industry and the politicians and everyone else, and say, damn it, we've had enough. We've got to go forward. Now, let me tell you how we do this, because that's the key. In California, uh, it looks like right now in this Senate District Election 15 in Monterey, Santa Cruz area. Yeah, John John, Laird versus uh, Sam Anastad. If he wins, and there's a chance he can win, I think you probably follow it closely, but if he wins, uh, it looks like we'll have, in the California Senate, two-thirds of the senators are Demo- will be Democrats. Mm-hmm. At the moment, we're one vote short. In the Assembly, we're three votes short of being two-thirds Democrats. And I know many, you know, the California Nurses Association, others uh, unions, the California School Employees and others, they're working in... Uh, district elections and assembly to try to elect Democrats to go after the, the very few competitive districts. But the goal that I'm working with all these organizations, we have 25 organizations in our coalition that I chair, including the nurses and so on, is our goal in the next two to four years is to get to two-thirds in the assembly and the Senate. Okay. Getting to two-thirds is step one of having a legislature that will pass single payer, but only step one. Step two, and, the, and perhaps even the more difficult step, is that we have about seven or eight Democrats who actually act as Republicans. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to primary one or two of those folks and go after them and say, either you support single payer and change your tune, or we're coming after you to get rid of you. Mm-hmm. And to create discipline among the, the two-thirds in both houses, among the Democrats, to support single-payer. I think that the only way we get single-payer passed in California is through the legislature with a two-thirds vote, which is going to be needed for the financing of single-payer. We can get the policy through. We can pass the policy with a majority vote. We've already done it twice. But it's the financing that requires a two-thirds vote. Right. And we're in, we're in spitting distance of getting there, and all of the groups I'm working with are focused on that. So then, now, l- let's now assume... it's irrelevant who's governor, because you can override a veto with a two-thirds vote. Hmm, okay. And once you get to two-thirds and you pass it, you know damn well the insurance industry is going to put an initiative on the ballot to overturn it. Mm-hmm. We would much rather be in a position to try to get a no vote and stop something, just like PG&E was stopped, yes. and Mercury Insurance was stopped. You know, PG&E could spend $50 million and they didn't win. They can't. It's harder for corporations to buy it if there's a, a movement against it. And we, we, our goal is to create the biggest grassroots movement we possibly can. The order of magnitude of this movement has to be like a civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. It has to be massive. It can't be just walking the halls of Sacramento and, and asking legislators to vote for it. We need literally millions of people. And we just recently were joined in our coalition with the Courage Campaign. They have 600 thousand people online supporters. Uh, I'm working on other online groups like that to come on board. And we literally have to get into the millions of people we can educate and therefore inoculate from those ads (laughs) that the insurance industry will run 
trying to overturn what we've done. So that's, I'm giving you a very brief summary of what the next two to four to six to eight years looks like. And I think it's got to go through the legislature, and then we've got to fend off a corporate insurance industry initiative that will try to undo what we've done in the legislature. Mm-hmm. And then once we, we win, ultimately, the whole grassroots movement has to turn into a watchdog organization. So the legislature doesn't take money out of the system and starve it like we've done with the U.S. Congress and Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, you know, so the whole the whole movement here is to educate people, get them inoculated, in a sense, and then get it through with a two-thirds vote and then stop the initiative and then become watchdog. Well, that's a very interesting strategy, and I certainly give you uh, a whole lot of credit and, uh, if I may say, love <laughs> for, you know, taking on this very long-term uh, struggle. And I agree with you that it's going to take uh, at least some of those steps. Do you see any way that uh, we could go directly to an initiative and bypass the legislature? Because uh, that is a long and arduous process. And whether it's Governor Whitman or Governor Brown, uh, you know, we we know Whitman wouldn't support it. And Brown has said uh, that he's sympathetic, but he doesn't think we can afford to do it. Yeah, well, that's, that's an argument that uh, we're actually working on now. Uh, we're putting together uh, the key players to oversee uh, another financial study showing why it saves the state 8 to $10 billion in its first year of implementation. And then after that, it'll save 20 or $30 billion a year after we go to single payer. But regardless of that, let me get to your question about why don't we just do an initiative. I think we could do an initiative if I can see you know, right over there, uh, 50 or $75 million sitting on the table mm-hmm. that we could spend to buy ads in the last month or two. And if I knew that we had probably in the neighborhood of 70 or 75% of the voters strongly supporting single-payer in polling. I've run an initiative. I ran the Prop 134 Nickel a Drink mm-hmm. Alcohol Tax Initiative in 1990, and we had unbelievable support in our polling. Uh, we were coming off the 88 initiative where the, the 25 cent a tax, cigarette tax passed. Uh, but when, when you get 40 million then, or you get two or 300 million now spent against you, and they buy all the radio, TV, billboard, every placards in every window of every place, you can't win. It's impossible to do that. And you can never predict what else is going to be on the ballot that, that year or that vote. And like with Prop 134 in 1990, we had 27 items on the ballot that came out of the blue. And pe- voters got confused and voted no on everything except term limits. <laughs> and uh, so I, I think that it is incredibly unlikely you can get an initiative passed it's, it's difficult to stop an initiative, and I don't want to underplay how difficult that will be. But it's a lot easier. I think it's going in, it's, it, you have 10 points of, of support on your side if you try to get a no vote rather than a yes vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting dynamic right there. Let's uh, listen to another. This is an ad from Ed Begley, Jr. I believe that one person can make a difference, and I try to live my life that way. That's why I'm involved in the California One Care campaign. 
We're not going to fix our health care system until you, and I mean you, get up and help us. Join the campaign for single-payer universal health care. Make a donation, volunteer your time, recruit your friends and family. You can make a difference. And now is your chance. Do it. California One Care. Full care for all for less. Very powerful message. And I want to uh, underline the, the five-second uh, voiceover at the end is mm-hmm. Elliot Gould. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I've met uh, Elliot in the SAG boardroom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he's, he's a very interesting guy, very committed. Yes. And uh, so it's great to have him on your side. Now, talk he's, our, he's our talent recruiter. Oh, okay. He is calling up his friends and saying, do ads with us. I thought maybe you were just doing the uh, cocktail circuit in Hollywood and passing out your card. No, uh, that's not where I go. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, how did you uh, enlist Elliot's support here? Well, we have a a woman named, uh, who's a supporter and and now a board member, named Kathy Fields Lander. And Kathy... uh, She's the, the daughter of, of uh, now-deceased Freddie Fields, who was a famous Hollywood agent. Oh, yeah. And uh, she's married uh, to David Lander, uh, who played, uh, I'm ashamed to say, he was on a sitcom I never have seen called uh, Laverne and Shirley. He was squiggy oh, okay. on Laverne and Shirley. I only saw it once, Andrew, so... Yeah, I've, I've never seen it. Uh, but she's enlisted the support of people on that show, like Penny Marshall and others, mm-hmm. and of course her husband. And she's friends with Elliot Gould and others, and so that's how he got involved. But but her husband David has uh, a very severe uh, disease, and it's not allowing him to work as a SAG member, and he's losing his health insurance soon. And it became very personal for her and and many others in mm-hmm. Hollywood. Eighty percent of the SAG members, the Screen Actors Guild members, have no health insurance. They don't work enough hours a year. Right. No, I, I uh, sat on the national board of the sister union, AFTRA, which represents right. actors and uh, people who work in TV and radio. We have 80,000 members, but uh, uh, somewhere uh, less than 10,000 now qualify for the health care coverage. And it used to be free. Uh, you got it if you earned a certain threshold, and uh, that threshold was once $1,500 a year. But the threshold is uh, north of thirty thousand now, and you have to pay premiums. So uh, we've we've been hammered in the uh, the union, and these these are portable health care plans that are specifically important for working actors because you have uh, tens or hundreds of employers over a lifetime, and if you can't combine your pension and your medical benefits into a portable package, then it, there is no no benefit. And so it's really sad because these were uh, really uh, forward-thinking plans when they were introduced in the 1950s and 1960s, and uh, the the costs have just driven things out of uh, spiraled out of control to the point where uh, you know the unions can't uh, offer that same coverage anymore. It's crazy, and and we put up with it, and and we defend. In fact, I hear comments like especially from members of Congress. We have the best health care system in the world. Uh, we have great doctors, great hospitals, great nurses, great people in health care. But why do we allow an overlay of complexity and ripoff by the insurance industry that no other nations allow? They simply don't allow that. And that's why all other countries, in fact, the countries that spend the most on health care per capita, 
still spend half what we do in the United States. And I'm referring specifically to Canada. Mm-hmm. Most other countries spend a fourth per capita what we spend on health care, and everyone is covered for everything, and they, they pay uh, you know, their, their taxes into the system, and they love the system. There is no more worry about portability or whether or not this disease is covered. I mean, the private insurance industry of America created a term called pre-existing condition. Why would you ever think that health insurance would come up with an idea that there are certain things you wouldn't insure in disease? How can you predict what what disease you're going to get or what injury you're going to get? How? Because it's profit over the delivery exactly. of health care. That's what Ernestine told us as we exactly. began this conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you for the work that you're doing. I can tell that you are undeterred and uh, that you're going to keep working on this. I like your multi-pronged approach here of empowering individuals to uh, line up with Hollywood stars to deliver these messages. And I want to, again, uh, encourage my listeners to go to the website, californiaonecare.org. You can browse through the commercials. You can make one of your own. And you can sign up to be a part of this very important movement. And I, I, can I add one quick thing? Please do. I mentioned in 1978 I started the campaign to make cigarettes fire safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, in March of this year, 32 years later, Wyoming became the 50th state to mandate that all cigarettes sold in their state are fire safe, according to the, the regulation that I helped create. And it's also the law in Canada and by the end of this year, all 27 countries in the European Union, uh, South Africa, Australia, and many other countries. And the last country I'm working on, on the, on the side in my spare time, is China. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> well, Andrew, uh, I want to thank you because you've helped uh, inspire me and uh, kind of re- renew my determination. Uh, I, you know, have felt that as a result of all the time and effort put into a very poor result in terms of Obamacare, that uh, we've kind of uh, uh, spent that for now, but you have a strategy here that could at least bring California uh, under a single-payer approach uh, within another six to ten years. And we need to keep struggling to do this. It's the most sensible approach to take, and it is the way that we can cover uh, hopefully everyone, but if not uh, the most possible uh, people at the uh, most reasonable rate and deliver health care more as a right than as a privilege for those who can afford to buy it. Agree. Thank you, sir. Andrew McGuire, CaliforniaOneCare.org. Your comments are welcome. You can email me, Peter, at PeterBCollins.com. Thanks a lot for listening. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you, keep smiling.